Hey, Susie. Hey, Steve. It's the big 3-0. We're in triple figures. We are in triple figures. This is our 30th episode and the final one for this series. Well, congratulations us. What have we learned? It's confirmed what I already thought, which is that there's an infinite number of amazing stories out there. When I walk down the street, I think that behind every door, there is at least one of the stories like the ones that we've heard. Extraordinary, heartbreaking, terrifying, uplifting. I think it was James Joyce who said that he never met a dull man. You know, that sense that the extraordinary is in the everyday is uh, has been confirmed by this series, don't you think? I do, Steve. And I think as well, I look at people with a new eye because I think, yes, you've got a you've got a story. I wonder what it is. But also I look at you and me. I've known you for a number of years, but I've learned so much more about you. One of the things I remember when we started this was with your background as a therapist, you were a little reluctant or it didn't feel quite right to you to to talk about really personal things because you were used to listening and reflecting, not not revealing yourself. And our last episode, the one about death, you were you felt comfortable to talk about it. It was incredibly personal and difficult. Yes, it was. And and I was surprised myself that even when I wanted to be talking about personal things, it didn't come naturally at all. By the way, as a little sidebar, I think for anyone who suffers from social anxiety, I think one of the best things to discover is that you don't have to be interesting. You just have to be interested, which is to say, if you make an effort to ask people about the single thing that they're most interested in, which is themselves, if you ask them and you really pay close attention to what people say, and then you push on because people will give you a glib answer because they know what happens, which is that people really aren't interested in hearing about them. So they're just going to get it over and done with. But if you push on and ask them really why they do what they do or what it is they do for fun or you know, however you want to prime the pump then you will find that people start to open up and they think that you are fascinating just because you make a good listener. I think we're lecturing to our listeners about listening. <laughs> we are. And I'm and because I'm a male, so I'm mansplaining as well <laughs> on top. <laughs> if only I can throw a gag in, then we can have a dad joke right on top, just as the cream on the cake. <laughs> How are we moving forward? We've done three seasons now, 30 episodes. Amazing. What happens next? I can't remember who it was, whose story we were listening to. It could have been anyone from this series. But I had the, the thought how often these things hinge on a single moment when you discover something, when news is broken to you or you suddenly come to a realisation. And I thought that's very powerful, that kind of sliding doors moment, a movie that I keep referring to and have never yet seen but you know that's that life suddenly takes a turn and i thought wouldn't it be great to hear those stories just told almost in isolation just the moment itself the moment i knew the moment i knew the moment where it it takes a turn something happens for better or worse yeah because i think that's often how we experience life isn't it that when you think back on the really big moments the moment when you met your the person who turned out to be the love of your life, or, you know, maybe you've just done a pregnancy test for the umpteenth time and finally you get the result that you want, or maybe a diagnosis or something. I have an anti-moment on you, by the way. It's uh, when with my husband, we both remember deciding not to get married 
<laughs> that we were committed to each other and we were in a, it, the relationship was going really well and we were in it for the long haul, we remember, but that we would not get married. And then I remember the bit where, well, I remember the bit where we got married, but we both have a very strange mental blank where we don't remember how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think there's something very mysterious about decision-making. I don't know about you, but when I think back on big decisions, I think they get made subconsciously. Very often, my own experience is that you don't actually make the decision. What you do is you discover that you have already made the decision. Do you think, does that resonate with you? Or can you remember occasions when you've weighed things up? There's a, a famous bit of paper by Charles Darwin where he weighs up the pros and cons of getting married, you know, the very sort of banal things about restrictions on social life and being able to be independent versus having companionship and children. Uh, most of us, I don't think, do things in quite such an Excel spreadsheet kind of a way. I think we make our decisions emotionally and perhaps even subconsciously, and then realise we've already decided. Have you got an example? Not of big occasions, but I think it's I think it's because I've been observing my own thought processes quite keenly now for some time. Attempting to stay as much as I can in the moment, I think, has been very helpful for me, as I've previously talked about. Try it next time you, you're, you're lying in bed and you realise you've got to get up, that actually it's almost like you find yourself getting up, not at the moment that you decide, but you realise that you've decided when you're actually up. I, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm making sense now at all, but I think it's it's quite a mysterious process that we we simplify into a decision-making one as if we actually make a decision, and I don't know that that's true. I will reflect on decision-making, even if it's just, what shall I get in for lunch? All right, so back to the moment I knew. Should we give it a go? Should we try it out? Who wants to go first? You go first. Okay, I can think of a moment. It was my 20-week scan, the anomaly scan for my pregnancy with my son. Some people call it the, the sexing scandal, the gender reveal scan, where they think they're just going to find out if it's a boy or a girl. But I already knew that it was about it's actually got a it's got a medical purpose. This scan is to to check that everything is progressing well with the pregnancy. And I will say I didn't have a great pregnancy in terms of my own anxiety and my my mental health because I lost my first pregnancy at 15 weeks. So it made this second pregnancy quite fraught for me anyway. I remember you lie down, they they strip off weird parts of your clothing, um, the jelly is really cold and they use the ultrasound wand and and there was a, um, a brief, what turned out to be a very brief window of release from that anxiety that I'd been with this the, the whole pregnancy. Uh, they, when the, the woman said, you know, she could see everything and, and she said, it's a little boy. And we went, wow, a little boy, fantastic. And then quite soon after that, she said, unfortunately. And so she started that sentence, unfortunately, it looks like your baby has a problem that I can see. I can see a, a cleft lip and probably palate and that's a, a complication. I can't even remember the rest of the sentence. I just remember that, unfortunately. 
and then everything came came rushing back all of that that anxiety and the worry and and the and just knowing that it was not going to be the 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 simple pregnancy experience that I thought everyone else was having I'm sure they weren't but the woohoo I'm having a baby isn't that great due at this stage how exciting uh, let's go shopping for very small clothing, all that kind of thing. I knew from that word, unfortunately, that things were going to be be tougher and be be difficult through the rest of the pregnancy, and that that I did I didn't know I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how how much of a problem it was going to be, but I knew there was a problem. The second time that Helen had breast cancer. The two were completely unrelated, which somehow um, seemed to make it worse, I think. But we had a very good oncologist, a terrific oncologist, actually very sympathetic and very reassuring and kind of quite funny. But he was away, so we had somebody else who was looking at the latest set of scans that Helen had had done and we got to see the report as well as that person telling us that it looked like bad news and we should be prepared for bad news and so on uh, which was a terrible shock not what we were expecting at all so that was a very uh, a very bad time, as you can imagine. And then we had an appointment to go and see Gary again, the oncologist. And Helen had the, as I recall it, Helen had the the uh, the films with her, and took them in, and uh, we were both in a pretty bad state, as you can imagine. So she handed them over to Gary, who put them up on that light box on his wall. And the moment that I knew that it was going to be okay, I was watching him very closely. And what I think I saw was this, that as soon as he looked, he knew immediately that it was okay. But it was as if he realized that if he'd said so as quickly as that, then somehow Helen would would not have accepted it. Or maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was just good professional standards. Maybe there's a process that they go through in their mind to, you know, to kind of multiply check things. I don't know. But it, for Helen, it must have been the longest, I don't even know how long it was, a minute or something, probably less than a minute, but it seemed like an eternity. It was different for me because I was... <laughs> Helen wasn't able to see through her tears and I was able to watch Gary and I knew that it was going to be okay. And when he told her, there's nothing there, don't worry about it, it's fine. It was that time that he took that really made the difference and it was such a, such a relief, such a, a lifting of a burden. That's lovely. May we all have such better news when we're expecting bad news. Yeah. 
The thing I remember that happened after the sonographer had talked through her understanding of um, the the problem that she could see the cleft lip in my in my baby, she said, "I mean, my my then husband didn't know anything about it. He he said, is the baby going to die?'" Um, so she taught, she gave us a sort of a very brief understanding of what it was, which is something that needs multiple surgeries and complications, but the baby does not die. The baby lives. And then she went and got a brochure for us. And the brochure was designed for sonographers for how they could talk to patients about cleft lip. So it didn't say this is a condition with a spectrum and you don't really know until birth, but in most cases the child goes on to have a normal life. What it said was you should tell your patients that this is a condition with a spectrum, but in most cases the child goes on to have a normal life. You should reassure your patients this, that, and the other. So it had this very strange sort of distance um, like an echo away from the the information. I've always remembered that. I don't know why. What a, a literary kind of ability <laughs> to have at that time, to be able to read the levels of meaning within that information. <laughs> There's something there, though, isn't there, about, you know, we become sponges for information. And actually, I, I think at the time, it's very difficult to take anything in at all. Certainly, I remember when Helen was first diagnosed, we we kind of, we knew very little about it. This was 20 years ago. And we were half expecting that it was a, a death sentence. And of course, breast cancer is not that. It's a spectrum with a wide range of different outcomes. Um, but you become very expert very quickly. Or at least you have that immense desire to soak up the knowledge and find out what this is going to mean, which unfortunately can lead you to Google, which can be a very bad thing in such circumstances. Yes, I've had brochures about various conditions that explicitly say, do not Google. I don't know if there is anybody who is capable of not Googling when told not to Google. It's like not thinking about the pink elephants. But if there is, it's not me. One thing that makes a big difference, perhaps perhaps almost bigger than any other difference, is the the professionals you get to work with. Helen was extraordinarily lucky in her fortunate in her both her surgeon and oncologist. They were both incredibly um, compassionate and human people. And so often, folks in that that line of work are not. I, I, certainly remember experiences like the one that I just referred to is the, um, the, the specialist who was filling in for Gary, who was lousy. She was terrible. And in fact, Gary was appalled at how she'd, how she'd handled it. And if, you know, if, if that was the kind of person that you were getting throughout your experience, it could be a lot worse than it needed to be. The medical stuff is, I mean, we know so little about it that unless you're the kind of person who likes to Google and think that that gives you a, a medical degree, I feel exactly the same when I'm taking my car to a mechanic. 
I have zero knowledge of anything going on there. And so I'm so reliant on them. You know, if they if they suck their teeth and shake their head and say, oh, this is looking very bad, then I have, then of course I believe them. <laughs> it's the same with medical stuff. So I'm really reliant on their communication skills and their consultation skills and their level of technical knowledge. This is the plan for our new season. It is the plan for our new season. For me, one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing these little podcasts has been listening to people's stories. You know, sometimes they've been hard to hear because they've been sad or heartbreaking. But even when they're sad or heartbreaking, they're so important and they are so revealing about the person. Recently, we said that without fear, there can be no courage. And it's when we really get tested that we find what we're capable of. In most cases, I'm amazed at how resilient people can be and how they can struggle on. Largely, I suppose, because they don't have much choice. You know, often people say that when they are congratulated for their bravery, they kind of say, well, what's the alternative? You know, you've got no choice. You've got to keep going. And in doing so, you then find depths of strength that you perhaps you didn't know you had. Well, Steve. God only gives us what we can handle. Is that, is that right? That's very, <laughs> that's very kind of him, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's it's neat as well. <laughs> that's a great conclusion. I prefer to say it the other way around. We can only handle what God gives us. We don't choose these things for ourselves, and, and of course we wouldn't. It would be a very strange world if we could choose things and things happened as we wanted them to, wouldn't it? Hard to imagine what that might be like. Instead, we get handed this rough bundle of sharp edges and rusty parts and that's what we've got to deal with and it's so unlike what we thought how we thought things were going to turn out and we get flowers and wine and chocolate brownies as well it's not just the rusty parts we get the good things too of course it is a very good point because these stories can be very uplifting and heartening so what sort of stories do we think we're after what do we want to hear the moment is a snapshot in time that meant a lot that has a weight to it so i guess it could be the moment that you first met the love of your life or perhaps the moment that you realized that you were in love with this person or the moment you won the lotto how about that i would love to hear from someone who <laughs> scratched back the number or whatever it is that you do with lotto i don't know how it works maybe that's why i won't i won't win one you have to be in it to win it <laughs> and then discovered that she'd won enough money to not have to worry about money again and to help the people around her that would be lovely to hear i'm in a lotto syndicate and i can never leave <laughs> because i met a man who'd left his lotto syndicate and i kid you not the following week they had a, a major win <laughs> so that's it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Debbie Downer. I thought we were trying to lift things up a bit here. <laughs> you managed to drag that one down pretty quick, didn't you? <laughs> so good stories, happy stories, surprising stories, bizarre, weird, wonderful, wacky. And everybody's got one. We do all have at least one of those. You know, there are whatever it is, 7.7 .7 billion people and every birth is an extraordinary story. Yes, definitely. Yeah, every death is unique and extraordinary in its own way. Without wishing to be indelicate, probably every conception is extraordinary in its own way as well. I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> so thanks for loading me up with that image. That will take me through. be interesting to see if we get one of those stories. 
What a conception <laughs> story. It's not that kind of podcast. So what do we need? I suppose we just need people to let us know that they've got a story. Just they don't even have to tell us what it is. But if you've got one, send us an email either to Susie at bloomcast.com.au or Steve at bloomcast.com.au. You don't have to tell us what your story is. Just let us know that you've got one that you're willing to share and we will do the rest. We'll be in touch. And also looking forward to our whole new season, The Moment I Knew. Coming soon to a podcast app. Near you. you.